began to see last week, we'll finish seeing it this morning. He has, all the way to the last, been quite deliberate in what he has chosen to write. You could think of it this way. Paul does not run out of steam uh, before finishing this letter. And so he deserves our complete attention all the way to the end. Uh, That's not going to be hard for us to do this morning because he has some big things to say to us, even as he closes this out in his final statements. Now, we began to see something last week as we we started with verse 11. We're, we're, We're finishing up verses 11 to 18 this morning. And what we began to see last week in this portion is that as we're finishing out these final verses, what we're really doing, thanks to Paul's intentionality, what we're really doing is we are at the same time reflecting on the letter as a whole, the letter of Galatians as a whole. Now, so one way to think of our time reflecting on sitting under, bowing before God's word this morning, one way to think of it really could be to think about what we have been shown by the Holy Spirit over the past many months as we worked through Galatians. We could ask this question, how should our thinking have been changed or grown since January? Since we started this in January, how is it that God has intended that his people would grow and change as they sit under this particular letter of Paul's? I hope it's very clear to you in your mind this morning that that is his intention for his people. As we gather week after week and sit together under his word preached, his intention is that he would change us as a result because his word is powerful. His word reaches in to the deepest part of us, it exposes us, and it does transform us. So how has our thinking grown or changed through the course of this study? I hope that you've been approaching our time in his word together in that way. Uh, If if you hear that question and you have to admit to yourself this morning that maybe you have not thought of it that way, that you've been coming and sitting and listening as an interested observer, but not really being, uh, not really letting it pierce and expose and change you. If that's something that you have in your conscience right now, I have very good news for you. And that is that next week we begin a brand new study of a brand new book of the Bible. Yet another opportunity from the beginning to start that way. To, to, to prepare yourself for his word preached. To prepare yourself for an entire book of the Bible to be unfolded and walked through. Uh, It was mentioned in the announcements earlier through more generous donations. Again, uh, we have the uh, study journals at the back for the Gospel of John, if you'd like to have one of those. Uh, And the hope is that through things like that, uh, we can all be preparing ourselves before Sunday for what he is going to give to us and open up for us in our corporate time of worship. So let me just encourage you, this is next week marks yet another opportunity to begin to prepare yourself like that to be confronted by the Word of God. Because that's what he does for us every single Sunday. Out of his love and his determination to conform us to the image of Christ, he lets us worship together in song, in prayer, humble our hearts before him. He lets us sit under his word preached. And so I hope that we've thought of it that way. Uh, Let's let's pause here uh, again and for the last time in Galatians and read together. From this book, I'll be reading Galatians 6, verses 11 to 18, from the English Standard Version. 
If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Paul concludes the letter in this way. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We got as far as verse 15 last week, but I want us to use verse 15 as we begin this morning. Uh, to lead us into the final verses that we have remaining. Uh, There are going to be three final statements for us to consider from Paul in verses 16 to 18. Uh, And that will sort of structure our time as we walk through this morning. But before we do, uh, I'd like us to reflect for a couple of minutes on verse 15 to lead us back in there. Uh, You may remember what we saw in verse 15 that we ended last week, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We noticed last week what an unexpected statement uh, that would be in a particular Jewish context in that time and how, uh, m- how much of the early church's wrestlings that we see, for example, in the book of Acts came out of that sort of an understanding and a realization of exactly what has changed since the cross of Christ. But if we've been looking through the letter of Galatians, if you've been with us through this study, that statement that he makes there in verse 15 really is anything but unexpected by this time. In fact, he's made a nearly identical statement uh, back in chapter 5, verse 6. So it's not unexpected that he would say this, but that does not keep it from being profound. Paul, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. The entire matter of circumcision, which was so significant in the Old Covenant, now counts for nothing. It's a profound statement for him to make. The right of circumcision, and notice, even, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The the existence of value and meaning in the whole issue Paul relegates to the old world order that has come to its fulfillment, that has been made obsolete and is ready to disappear, according to Hebrews 8.13. That's how it describes this. That's why, for example, Paul is willing, in Acts 16.3, he's willing to circumcise Timothy in the course of their uh, missionary ministries and journeys. He's willing to circumcise him. 
because the whole matter is irrelevant. Now, whatever the obstacle is going to be to the gospel coming out, he's willing to go, uh, he's willing to go there. It's a matter of indifference because of the cross of Jesus Christ. I'd ask you to do something with me for just a moment. Would you look with me uh, in another place, 2 Corinthians 5 and find verse 14. We'll just look here quickly. I'm going to read verses 14 to 17. And listen to what Paul says here to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now just stop for a moment. Notice verse 14, he has spoken of Jesus' death and of his people's sharing in that death. Did you hear that? The sharing that takes place there? That's verse 14. Verse 15, that death that we have shared in brings a new kind of life. That's verse 15. Continuing on in verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What do you see there in verse 17? Can you hear it in what he says there, that a new creation has dawned in the death and resurrection life of Jesus Christ? We've said it many times in this study that there is most certainly for Christians living between the ascension of Christ and his second coming, there's most certainly an, what we call an already not yet reality to the life that we live. And yet here in verse 17, Paul speaks of a certainty. He speaks of an inevitability. And it's because of the sheer impact of the cross upon human history. This is what has happened as a result of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's rightly described as an eschatological reality that we're talking about there. Maybe you're like me. Often when we hear the word eschatology, what is it that we think of? Maybe we think of the book of Revelation immediately and only, uh, and some arguments that happen in the book of Revelation. Maybe we think of that when we hear the word eschatology. We're talking about the study there of end things, because the eschaton is the end. In Christ... The eschaton is breaking into the history of mankind. And the fact of that has everything to do with how we, you and I as Christians, think about ourselves now and our lives and our very natures. It has everything to do with how you should think about your nature now that you are new in Christ, if you are a believer. I was pleased to see Tom Schreiner writes about this very thing uh, and combines both of these realities uh, in terms of what is said there in 2 Corinthians of eschatology and what that means about our humanity now as Christians. Anthropology. So listen to what he said. He says, eschatology then, now he's speaking about our context in Galatians. Eschatology then plays a vital role in Galatians. 
For the Judaizers were attached to the old age and failed to see that the new had come. Their error, however, was not merely eschatological. There were anthropological corollaries, mistakes about how they're thinking of humans. <laughs> there were anthropological corollaries and causes because those who are attached to the old age cling to it because they desire to establish their own righteousness instead of receiving the righteousness from God, as is described in Romans 10, verse 3. So this is the context that we are ending this letter in this morning. We are told in verse 15 that Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father have inaugurated a new creation. The old is passing away. Even the old covenant, which as we've seen, was a God-given, good, temporary means of blessing and protection of Abraham's physical line until the promised seed arrived. It's exactly what he says in Galatians 3, 19 to chapter 4, verse 7. Even that old covenant, because of what it was pointing to, has now come to an end. And so we don't seek a relationship with God by means of the old covenant. We don't use old crutches to try to walk with God. We walk by the Spirit. The Spirit of God, which is now poured out on his people in the new creation. And it's in that context that Paul now gives us what we're going to see are three statements for us to deal with in closing out this letter. So what I want us to do with our time this morning are two things. Number one, I want us to walk through each of these three verses and to notice in particular a statement in each of them uh, that he makes. So we'll do that very carefully. And then secondly, I want us to end this morning with three takeaways from the letter as a whole. And you'll see we've already started to do that last week as we're just hearing Paul summarize his letter in these closing verses. So we'll walk through the three uh, statements that we're to hear in these remaining verses, and then we'll end with three takeaways from the letter as a whole. First, look with me at verse 16. Verse 16 is a sort of a declaration. I mean, he says, we hear him essentially saying, I told you just now in verse 15 about the new creation that Christ has brought and is bringing and will bring. Right? Now, in verse 16, I'm simply declaring God's blessing of peace and mercy upon all who live according to that declaration. He says, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So peace and mercy are expressed here by Paul to those who, he says, walk according to this canon or this ruler, this standard. It's the word that he uses here. To all who enter the narrow gate and walk the narrow path of faith in Christ alone for salvation, trusting in no works of their own and therefore no external rites of passage, to all those who walk according to that standard of salvation in the new covenant that I have laid out in this letter, peace and mercy be upon them. So what he says in verse 16. And in the whole verse, this is what he says. It's simply that at the end of the verse, Paul is still Paul, and so he has to go and get a little bit feisty with his words. 
Uh, we've seen him do this many times. He gets another, I imagine him with a twinkle in his eye again, maybe a little bit of a smirk on his face as he finishes the dictating of this sentence, because he's again going to play with words in a provocative way to make a point. I want to show you what I mean by that. We've seen him do this a lot of times in Galatians already. He does this throughout his letters. Paul was one, have you figured it out yet? Paul was one spirited guy. He would not come to your dinner party and be a boring guest to come and sit through the evening with. He was passionate and he was spirited. And when you mix that in somebody with incredible giftedness in, uh, in communication, you get the kind of thing that we've been encountering many times in this letter. And you know, I just think, um, when I think about Paul's life, you remember the, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Um, it, it, it seems reasonable to me. It, it probably takes this kind of a person to walk through the things that the Lord is going to call him to walk through in his life and to persist in faithfulness to the end. It takes a feisty person to receive the Jews' 39 lashes five times in his life, multiple rod beatings, a stoning in there somewhere, multiple imprisonments, shipwreck, and keep on proclaiming the gospel. What kind of a person are you going to find when you analyze them at the end of their life who has walked through those things faithfully? You're going to find a feisty individual. Well, fine then. So then we get to wrestle with the point that Paul makes here at the end of verse 16 and the way that he makes it. And really, I think it's, it's much easier to hear Paul's intent when he says at the end of verse 16, and upon the Israel of God, that's the expression we're grabbing onto here and thinking about. It's a lot easier to uh, hear his intent when we have done what we've done in walking very carefully through the letter to the Galatians. If we don't let uh, other arguments come in, and at, at least at first here, we just, we just hear him, I think his meaning is fairly clear. And what I mean is this. Does it fit? I'll just ask you the question. If you've been here through this study, does it fit in any way in this letter for Paul to get here and to suddenly pronounce a blessing on the physical national people of Israel? Does that fit with anything that he has been doing in this letter? My goodness gracious, how much that would fly in the face of this entire letter. His whole point has been to get the Galatians to understand that they are sons of Abraham by virtue of spiritual connection and not by virtue of physical connection. It's been the entire point, the entire thing they have missed that's led them to think that they, even as Gentiles, ought to walk their way into Jewish uh, rights and, and, uh, and behaviors. Now, it's not what he's doing here at all when he speaks of the Israel of God. What he's doing is he's playing with terms to drive home what's been the entire point of the letter. He's very good at, at wielding the pen skillfully for memorable rhetorical effect. In chapter 6, verse 2, he took the law and did that. He's used the word law as a synecdoche for the Mosaic Covenant all the way through. He has used the word law 31 other times in this letter and never qualifies it, never says the law and, and adds adjectives onto it. It's very clear in his usage of it. 
And then he gets to chapter 6, verse 2, and now he wields that word and he turns it. He says, the law of Christ. The law of Christ. And we saw then that he's using that term paradoxically. He's using it ironically. Because he's writing to a people who are being tempted with adherence to the Mosaic law. And he's saying, this is not uh, what we find coming over into the new covenant. We find an eternal moral standard of God. But we're not submitting to the Mosaic covenant. So he, but he uses the word law in his summary of what he's just said, and he calls it the law of Christ. We saw in Galatians 5.12, uh, Paul do some rhyming. Uh, he, he rhymed and riffed on the term circumcision. And by the time he was done, he had come up with another term that rhymed. And in, do, in so doing, he wasn't just mocking his opponents. He was actually appealing directly to the Greek Old Testament and bringing down an Old Testament curse on his opponents from Deuteronomy 23. This guy can write. I mean, literary devices, irony, plays on words. In the, just to give you another example, when he writes to the Corinthians, who have questioned his motives and his genuineness in ministering to them, uh, he, he responds to them by pointing out that he had taken no payment from them in order to serve them. He was serving them free of any cost, although he could have asked them to compensate him, to support him financially. And so he's speaking about that. In 2 Corinthians 11.8, he manages to describe that in this way. He says he was able to do that by robbing other churches in order to serve them for free. I mean, that's what he says. And he's describing there the gifts that he had received from the church at Philippi in order to provide financially for him. But he calls it robbing other churches in order to supply. Why is he doing that? He's, he's getting at their accusations toward him using sarcasm. And we could go on and on and on. Paul is known for this sort of thing. Now, these are just a few examples to convey how boldly and creatively and effectively Paul wields the pen when he is driving home points. And here in verse 16, he takes the whole notion he's built up in this letter about the newness of the new covenant and the new covenant community. And he closes it all out with the use of a phrase, the Israel of God, that, get this, appears nowhere else in the Bible. We find this expression, the Israel of God, nowhere else but here. Not in anything else he writes to any other churches, not in the Old Testament, not in any of what's uh, called the pseudepigrapha. There's, we have a collection of writings around 200 years around the life of Christ that also help us to know how uh, phrases were used in that time and what was common expression. doesn't show up in any of that. No one else uses this expression, the Israel of God. T. David Gordon writes about this and notes how, um, how this achieves what Paul is doing. Listen to what Gordon wrote. He says, the unqualified term Israel ordinarily refers to genetic descendants of Abraham, whether in Paul's usage or elsewhere. But Paul was the first to qualify the term with the genitive phrase, of God. And this qualification of a term that was so common in its unqualified form was almost certainly disjunctive in some way. This is especially so since the two terms are frequently paired with one another in reverse order. So he's saying two things there. He's saying to take the phrase Israel, the word Israel, 
that has such a clear meaning of its own, and it's a physical meaning. And then to add to it this qualification achieves what he's done in other places, of taking a word and sort of turning it on its head to make his point. But the other, thing that, the other point that Gordon is making is that this is especially memorable because of how this is an inverse of an extremely common expression. Take Israel of God. Take Israel and God and flip them around, and what do you have? You have God of Israel, right? Uh, a phrase that is absolutely pervasive through the scriptures. God of Israel, he's described in that way with, that, with these terms in reverse 198 times in the Hebrew Bible. And so what Paul does is he takes a phrase that is universally recognized and he inverts it, turns it on its head to drive home the point that he has made so explicit in Galatians about the new covenant community. And so Gordon ends his commentary on this verse like this. He says, the true Israel of God is actually constituted of those who recognize the rule that neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision. Now let's think about that for a moment, because that's very helpful. It takes this statement, the Israel of God, and keeps it in the context of his sentence, right? As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. In this way, it's exactly like what he did in Philippians 3. Don't turn here. Let me just read this to you. When he's again there warning about the Judaizers, listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3. He does the same thing with the word circumcision. He says to those he's writing to, For we are the circumcision, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Wait a minute. Circumcision is all about the flesh. It's all about a marking of setting apart of belonging to God in the flesh. That's what the word means, Paul. He says, look, let's get this straight. We are the circumcision. Those who put no confidence in the flesh. Those who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. He takes the former meaning and value of circumcision and turns it exactly on its head. We are the true circumcision, those who put no confidence in the flesh. That's exactly what he's doing here by employing the word Israel in his identification of these people who walk according to this rule. Again, for all who walk by this standard, that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, for all who walk by that standard, peace be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. The word for and or even, it's the same word. We have to decide how we put it. I think the word even does an even more helpful job of getting this across. Because he's not talking about two groups. He's talking about the same group. So that's the first of our three statements to deal with as we're walking through the last few verses here. And just, just notice with me as we move on, uh, again, how effective this is in demonstrating the one plan of God in all time but demonstrating the identity of his people in the New Covenant as those who put their trust in Jesus and his work and in nothing else. No works of my own. The finished work of Christ. I am safe. I, I belong to God's people if I am in union with Christ. And that is all that matters. Circumcision, uncircumcision, it counts for nothing. A new creation is what counts for everything. 
The second and third statements here in verses we'll go through much more quickly, I promise. Look at verse 17 for the second statement for us to consider. Here's what he says there. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Is it interesting to you that he now, in this verse, appeals to bodily marks? Is, this, is, this is something coming right off of the statements in 15 and 16. We had in verse 15 a statement that devalues the physical bodily mark of circumcision. We have a statement in verse 16 that appropriates the name, the historic name of God's people for those spiritually united to Christ. But here's what we see in verse 17. Maybe there are some physical marks that bear some significance after all. Just think of the comparison that is produced here. His opponents boast of circumcision, right? They boast of a bodily mark with what he says is no value whatsoever. They bear that mark, but there are other marks that are conspicuously absent from their bodies. What marks do the Judaizers' bodies not bear? Well, how about any marks of suffering for the sake of Jesus' name? How about those marks? You won't find those marks. There's a theme in the New Testament that we're tapping into here. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Luke's account of, that, of those blessings, Luke includes a woe that goes with it. In Luke we read this, then, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is a uh, I would venture to say, based on how he ends it, the theme of Stephen's final message that he preached before the Sanhedrin, before he was murdered. He gives a summary, a very uh, intentional, carefully prepared summary of the history of God's people, and he ends it like this in Acts 7.52 with a question. It's a good rhetorical way to end a message as well, isn't it? Remember what his question was? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? We see there in verse 52 of Acts 7. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming. of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. It's a constant theme. Jesus told us, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Using, by the way, whoever does not bear his own cross using the same word that Paul chooses to use 
here when he says that he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. There are other words available. I don't know if that's intentional or not, that allusion, but he uses the same word there. These opponents of Paul have no such marks. And we saw why last week, didn't we? They have avoided persecution by refusing to proclaim the scandal of the cross. They think they found a way to have Jesus and to avoid suffering for his sake. And they've achieved it by removing the elements of his message and his work that, were, that scandalized those of his day. And so Schreiner says here, Paul's marks are the only ones that matter because they point to the cross. Now let's let that lead us into verse 18. We find thirdly and finally here in verse 18, listen to what he says as he's ending. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Now I wonder if... Um, if anything strikes you in the way that he ends this here. You notice, uh, look, at, look at verse 16 and verse 18. Let me just give you a second to look at those two. There are a couple of things that have struck me. One is small, a theological point, and the other is much bigger. It's a relational point in Paul's words here. Theologically, this really fits the letter well, doesn't it? That Paul, uh, who has already prayed in verse 16 for peace and mercy, uh, that he saves the request for grace to this final sentence here. It fits, because this is the message that lies at the heart of the letter of the Galatians. The need to recognize our utter dependence upon the grace that God gives to sinners. We who are in our hearts rebellious against him, unable to even desire to come to him unless he first renews. We depend on the grace of Jesus Christ from start to finish. Or one way he said it in this letter toward the end is this, belonging to the new creation is all that matters. And, and that transfer of membership is unattainable except by the grace of God in Christ. This is the, the, the basis of the Christian distinctions with Judaism and with the Old Covenant itself. And similarly, the basis uh, of something that we touched on a bit in Sunday school this morning. I was very interested in some of the connections that may, that may be there. Uh, this is the basis of our concepts concerning Christian liberty as well. It was said, if you weren't here in Sunday school, that from the beginning of the Reformation uh, and the, the understanding and breaking away from the theology and doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, what defined the early Reformation Church was a profound understanding and sense of the freedom that we have in Christ and the freedom that is granted us by virtue of, because of grace, we can know with certainty that we are safe in the hands of God. There's great freedom that comes from those things. Well, the newness of the new creation, the newness of the new covenant is the basis for those things concerning Christian liberty. But even more important, I think, in verse 18 itself is to notice how intentional, yet again, Paul is in the way he words this. 
So look with me here in verse 18. I want you to notice how intentionally personal it is, the way he finishes this letter, the way he chooses to relate himself to those that he's writing to. How intentionally he is relating the unity that exists between them as brothers and sisters in Christ. He ends by addressing them with the title, brothers. And he emphasizes Christ's lordship over all of them. He says, the grace of our Lord, Jesus Christ, be with your spirit, brothers. One way to notice how intentional he's being is to understand that this is the exact same way he ended the books of Philemon and Philippians. Except for, guess what? Those two words. Both of those letters end like this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, period. It's a fine way to end a letter. That makes me think he is being quite intentional here, though, in how he reassured them of this unity that he has with them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Now, if you've been with us through the study, again, it's not hard to understand why he might want to be very clear about this unity. Can you blame him for feeling that his hearers might be encouraged, might be helped with a doubling down on the unity that he has with them, the love, the fellowship? This letter has been a hard one to receive, hasn't it? This is not one of the New Testament letters that you would hope to go back in time and belong to that situation so you could receive this letter. This is not one of those. This has been a hard letter to get. But in ending this way, he makes very clear that he meant what he said back in chapter 5, verse 10, when he expressed there his complete confidence that they will hear this letter and respond to the correction of it faithfully. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there is a great deal that we can learn from this posture on Paul's part, from the way that he loves and invests in these brothers and sisters of his. I think you can say it this way. I think what we see in Paul, in the way he wrote to the Galatians, is we can see that he loved them like God loves us. He is modeling God's love for us in the way he's loving these Galatians. We see it in a number of ways. Paul wants the best for them. Paul exhibits consistent patience with them. Paul is willing to protect them even when it will be uncomfortable to him to do so. Does that express how we have received the love of God in Christ? Paul does not love them with an idolatrous love. That is to say, he loves them, but he loves God more. Does that reflect God's love for us? You bet it does. He loves his children. He loves himself more. Or would you make him out to be an idolater? So Paul is showcasing the way we love with the same love with which we have been loved. He's putting it on display here as he's writing to these Galatians. I wonder, which of those elements do we find hard to implement when it comes to our love for one another? 
What, what display of God's love for his people have we seen in Galatians that we read it and we go, ooh, that would be hard. That's hard to do. I'm glad, for, I'm glad there are Pauls out there, so I don't have to love others in this way. What are the ones that are hard for us to implement? I would suggest to you that the notion today of confrontation or even correction, oftentimes, can rise almost to the level of a mortal sin to us today. Something for some maybe unthinkable that we would participate in, or that it could possibly be an element of godly love for those who we love. But see, Paul has been wise enough to understand the danger that these Galatians are in, hasn't he? And the fact that they are in this danger and that he loves them meant that he was compelled to speak up, to correct, to rebuke, to speak the truth in love. That's what it meant. I would say, in fact, and we're moving here toward closing, toward the the three general observations, but I would say that this is one of the three main takeaways that we ought not forget from our time in this letter. So let's, let's dig into it a little bit. We'll end our time, as I said, with three takeaways overall from Galatians, but we may as well start with this one, because we're already talking about it at the end of verse 18. The first takeaway has to do with occasions of conflict and confrontation in the body of Christ. Do local churches deal with occasions of conflict and confrontation? Or are these pockets of utter peace in an otherwise chaotic world? I hope that we're all mature enough to understand that that is not true, that churches are places of conflict and confrontation at times. We are not yet conformed to the image of Christ, and we are doing life together in meaningful ways. You know what that means? Conflict. Just, Just wait for it. Individual, interpersonal conflict, conflict that can rise to the level even of the entire church, matters that need to be thought through, rebukes that might need to happen, humility and accepting of correction, the ability to apologize and to forgive. All of those things are on full display in every local manifestation of the body of Christ. Because how else does the world see Christ's image at work and growing in a, in a yet not perfected people. His glory is put on display. As we, In fact, we spoke about that last week, didn't we? In these very things. I think there are two sides to that takeaway that we, that we need to notice individually as we're thinking about the letter to the Galatians here. And you know, it may be that these two sides, it may be that a simple personality test would divide us up equally between one or the other of these Uh, these sides to the takeaway. One side, I think is more obvious. We must love each other enough to say the hard thing when it needs saying. There's a sinful, prideful, hateful way to do such a thing, but that is a display of the love of God. For some of us, that is the hard part that we must receive from God's word and be changed by because some of us just absolutely hate confrontation in any shape or form. And even think it to be a bad thing anywhere it's found. There's a popular television character of our time that represents this well. He's also very bad with confrontation. And you can tell he doesn't get it at all 
when he, 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 he picks an example uh, for the right way to be sensitive to someone in a hard situation. He says this, I'll leave it to you to guess who this is or to Google it. He says, am I going to tell them that hard thing? He says, no, I'm not going to tell them. As a doctor, you would not tell a patient if they had cancer. This is his example of why, of course, you ought not to say this. Well, we hear that and we chuckle because of how obviously damaging and dangerous that sort of approach would be to these matters. We have to be discerning and wise enough and see it in Scripture enough to shed those, under, those misunderstandings. The love of God with which he has loved us, with which we are to love one another, must involve times of loving confrontation and correction. That's one side that some of us line up behind and need to hear. The other side of the takeaway, though, is particularly, I think, on display in verse 18. Because of our real unity and mutual commitment to each other and love for one another, the times when there must be conflict, my friends, they have to be the times when we are extremely eager to reassure our brothers and sisters of our love and commitment. Paul closed other letters to other churches that he cared about deeply, but that he didn't need to wound so deeply. And there he didn't need to emphasize it like he's emphasizing it here. He knew how deeply he was cutting here, and he then felt the deep need to go even further to assure them of his love and his care and his unity with them. That's just a matter of sensitivity. We have to know when those moments arise that need extra reassuring and gentleness. And if that's true in a place like the letter to the Galatians, where the conflict is very serious, even theological strife, I mean, this is a big deal, the issues that he's dealing with in Galatians. This is eternal salvation matters that he's having to deal with. If this is true in conflicts at that level, then it's all the more proper that this would be a priority when the source of conflict is something less than that. When we need to have hard conversations or conversations that involve some correction, those are the times to be all the more intentional about conveying our love and our uh, we're in this together, I'm with you reality. And the letter of Galatians highlights that for us and gives us an example of exactly how this can play out. A second takeaway quite different from that first one, as we look at Galatians as a whole and what we've seen here, has to be what we have learned about the nature of our Christian liberty. We touched on this at points as we've gone through the letter. Uh, We've gone to Romans chapter 14. We've been reminded of the reality that the new covenant means that we are free men in Christ. Before Christ came, God had instructions for his people for obedience. All foods were not clean before God, before Jesus ushered in the new covenant. Now all foods are clean. We are no longer treated, to use two metaphors from Galatians, we're no longer treated as children or as the household servants. We are now grown inheritors in possession of the promised blessing. 
And freedom is what comes with this. Freedom in Christ. We don't try to relate to God by virtue of the Old Covenant or its lengthy law codes. Rather, we now walk before God walking by the Spirit that He has poured out in the New Covenant. Growing in the gifts of the Spirit. Being called to keep in step with the Spirit. We've seen these things clearly. We've also seen the important clarification that Paul makes at several places. That that freedom in Christ has nothing to do with the notion of being free from or outside of God's eternal moral law that reflects his own eternal character. There is no freedom from that. Walk away from that, you're only in enslavement. So we're not talking about freedom to sin that grace may abound. May it never be. The freedom brought by Christ is liberation from sin's bondage and domination. Indeed, it's freedom to obey what he calls in this letter, the law of Christ, by a new heart of flesh that God has given to us. Finally, the third and final takeaway, we see from this letter that a Christian embraces the reality that God is the only audience that matters. And that's one of those very simple statements that we ought to have thought of much more than we have. It's one that, that deserves some meditation. God is the only audience that matters. He must be our audience. What I do, I do because he would be pleased by it. Where I choose to stand, I stand because he has directed me to stand there. And as I find the places, and oh, I will find them, <laughs> as surely as I find weeds in my backyard year after year, more surely than that, as I find the places where my priorities or actions or speech are formed because of what other people will think rather than because of what the Lord will think. In those places, I am living as an idolater. He is the audience that matters. Yes, God has given us one another, and we need and should value the input and leadership of trustworthy people that God has brought to our lives. Yes, it's not only natural, but also right and proper that we would have regard for other people's wise opinions. All of those things are safeguards that God gives us, aren't they? Because we know our perspective is limited. But I think we all know that there's a big difference between that and the places we so often go, where we judge our next step based on the fear of man. We can paraphrase Paul's words from Galatians 1.10 to this effect. If I decide my steps if I gauge my priorities, if I settle my beliefs based on a desire to please people, I cannot be living as a servant of Christ. No one can serve two masters, can they? I would end our time by giving you a really long uh, sentence, or maybe a short summary. I, I forget if I have any periods in here. Maybe it's more than one sentence. Let's take all six chapters 
of Galatians and end with a statement. He has written this letter to those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the statement is for those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, brother, sister, you have a Savior who has rescued you from this present evil age. Galatians 1. By allowing you to share in his death and in his sufferings, so that you might also share in his life. And that's from Romans 6.5. Romans intrudes a couple of times here. I tried to keep it out and I couldn't. You are crucified with him. Galatians 2. And by that death, you are now freed to be joined to him forever. There's Romans 7.4. You're joined to him, not by your doing, but by faith in his doing. Galatians 3. And in doing that, what God has done is he has kept his promise that he made to our father Abraham. Galatians 4. But so long as you live in this present evil age, be ready. Be ready for the ever-present obstacle that your flesh, which isn't done dying yet, be ready for the ever-present obstacle that your flesh will pose to your walk with Christ and pursue the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. Do that not by yourself as a lone ranger Christian, because there is no such thing. Do it out of an obvious and deliberate awareness of the community of faith that Christ has saved you into. Galatians 6. The grace of our Lord, Jesus Christ, be with your spirit, brothers. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are faithful. You are utterly and always faithful when we are not. You are persistent in your goodness towards us. And we see it every day that we live. Father, you are making us anew after the image of your Son, your beloved Son. And you have loved and protected us by giving us eyes to see so that we tremble before your word. We confess, Father, that we do not tremble as we ought, but because you have put it in us to love your word, we do thank you. And we ask you to make us tremble the more. We ask you to make us hunger and thirst for it and to bow low before its authority as you feed us with it. Lord, help us to walk humbly before you all the days of our lives. We ask this together as your people and in Jesus' name, amen. Our God has blessed and protected us this morning with his word. So can I invite you to stand with me and let's respond to that gift together in song.
From the breaking of the dawn to the setting of the sun, I will stand on every promise of your word. Words of power strong to say that will never pass away. I will stand on every promise of your word. For your covenant is sure, and on this I am secure. I can stand on every promise of your word. When I stand Condemnation resting in. I will stand on every promise of your word. You are faithful to forgive that in freedom I might live. So I stand on every promise of your word. Till to Since restored, you remember sins no more. So I'll stand on every promise of your word. When I'm faced with anguished choice, I will listen for your voice. And I'll stand on every promise of your word. Through this dark and troubled land, you will guide me with your hand. As I stand on every promise of your word. And you've promised to complete every work begun in me so i'll stand on every promise of your word hope that lives me from despair love that cast out every fear as i stand on every promise of your forsaken, not alone, for the Comforter has come, and I stand on every promise of your word. Grace sufficient, grace for me, grace for all who will believe, we will stand on every promise of your word. Grace sufficient, grace for me, grace for all who will believe. We will stand on every promise of your Peace.